Hello and welcome to this episode of the Millis Podcast, a show about ideas, books and events from the Christian intellectual scene in Australia and beyond. I'm your host, Simon Kennedy, and I am the director of the Millis Institute and senior lecturer in the humanities at Christian Heritage College in Brisbane. I'm also a research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland. And I'm joined today by uh, Greg Sheridan, AO, who is the foreign editor at The Australian. He's a respected newspaper, radio and TV commentator. He's one of Australia's leading public intellectuals. His career in journalism has seen him corresponding from glamorous places like Beijing and Washington, and the most glamorous of all will be Canberra, of course, Greg. Um, he's, now, he's now based in Melbourne. He writes a regular opinion column for The Australian along with his editorial uh, duties there. He's the author of a number of books, uh, most recently uh, being uh, God is Good for You by Alan, uh, through Alan and Unwin. And his most recent book, which we're going to chat about today, is this one, Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World, also published through Alan and Unwin. It's a book that ranges over early Christianity, biblical criticism, apologetics, politics, cultural engagement. You meet Christians uh, from uh, places like China, Tanzania, United States, Singapore, Australia, and the United Kingdom. It's a fascinating book, and it's great to have Greg on to discuss it. Welcome to the Millis Podcast, Greg. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, uh, Simon. It's really good to talk to you. Uh, you've uh, you've written this book, Christians, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment, um, and it's a book that could be summarised, at least to my mind, as a, a defence of Christianity, but also a witness to the way that Christians live uh, and also impact their world. Before we get to the book, what what's your own journey in relation to the Christian faith? Well, Simon, I must say my journey is extremely undramatic and mundane, really. I was uh, I was born into the Christian faith, and um, so I was born in 1956 at a time when, uh, notionally at least, almost all Australians were at least nominally Christian. Um, the faith was the centre of the life of my family, and uh, um, I've always... Uh, been a Christian believer, uh, there's, you know, for about a week or so, I tried to see if I could uh, look at atheism, not really a week, really just for one day, and uh, yeah. it kind of didn't work. And yeah. um, so I've never had the, any trouble at all with Christian belief. Mm. Um, I have had, uh, you know, the great challenge in living up to an ethical Christian life, an yeah. enormous challenge there. But um and I guess there are periods in my life when your when your faith is more intense, mm. when you seem to be in a more intense uh, relationship with uh, with mm. Jesus than than at other times. But um, it's kind of always been there, always been there for me. And I've mm. you know I've had the practice of, uh, of saying some prayers every day and so on mm. for my whole life. So um, so uh, it hasn't really been a moment of. Um, revelation for me or anything like that it's uh, it's just always been part of my uh, part of my world that's it's very it's very interesting and encouraging for someone like me who has a very similar boring uh boring story in relation to the christian faith growing up in a christian home and so on um uh, christians is a book uh as i was reading it I, I was reflecting on the audience for the book and and it's it's a book that will encourage christian believers but also challenge non-believers, I think. Um, what were you aiming to do in writing the book? What was the, the goal of the book? Well, Simon, um, so uh, two books ago, I wrote a memoir, uh, When We Were Young mm. and Foolish. I went to a whole lot of writers' festivals. 
was astonished that there was not a single book <clears throat> in favour of Christianity or in favour of yeah. the Jewish outlook on life. And I thought, yeah. how can that be, given that yeah. the Judeo-Christian tradition absolutely formed our civilization? Yeah. So I and I thought the culture had turned against Christianity, yeah. and uh, to some extent was trying to bluff Christians out of their faith with two propositions. Really, one is that that belief in God is irrational, and the other is that the that the New Testament is a fantasy or all lies or something. Mm. So the last book good for you addressed this question: belief belief in God. Mm. Somebody said to me, uh, emerging from that book. Not a bad defense of the idea of God, belief in God, but but where is the living Jesus in that book? And wow. I realized that was a very fair criticism because I, I assert in that book as an intellectual proposition that the person mm. of Jesus Christ is the absolute center of the Christian faith. So this book, uh, you know, is in two halves, as you say. The first half is really a search for Jesus yep. uh, through reading the New Testament mainly as a journalist, just reading it as a professional journalist, reading the books one book at a time for narrative, character, incident. And um, like a lot of Christians, I get different passages of, of the Gospels and think about them for their theological significance. But yeah. I hadn't really, in my life, I'm ashamed to say, read a book of the New Testament from start to finish right? just as, as if I were a normal reader. Yeah. And, of course, um, the uh, so then I, I buttress that reading with research, but reading it as a journalist is great fun. A lot of it is yeah. is high class journalism, especially the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. He tells us at the start he's the Bob Woodward of the Jesus movement. Yeah, you know, he's spoken right. of yep. everyone. He's read all the accounts. Uh, yeah, this is this is his journalistic method. Yeah, and um, and the other thing is I wanted to demonstrate to modern readers that scholarship has not rendered the New Testament. Uh, fantastical or unbelievable. In mm. fact, scholarship has swung back to the idea that the New Testament is pretty much eyewitness history or the testimony of people who reported the eyewitnesses. Now, yeah. that you shouldn't believe in Christianity because scholarship swings that way. You shouldn't right. disbelieve in Christianity because scholarship swings yeah. some other way. But modern people who are inclined to dismiss the New Testament should be aware that you can now safely saved from history, Jesus lived, he was crucified, the early Christians believed he was risen. You can establish all that from history and everything that you can test in the New Testament mm. against history turns out to be true. Right. And the, um, you know, the scholars now think that it was the the eyewitness testimony or, or people reporting eyewitnesses. So mm. I thought that was important to tell to modern readers. And then in the second half of the book, I wanted to look at what the modern friends of Jesus are mm. like how belief in Jesus um, shapes their lives, leads them to the choices that they make. Yes. Yeah, that's helpful. And so um, were you, I mean, it struck me reading it, Greg, that this is the kind of book I would give to my non-Christian friends to read. It's, it's very accessible but really interesting and, and approachable in a way that, you know, a book in, that might have been, written by a Christian theologian isn't. Um, did you think this would be kind of write this thinking that this would be a good book for non-believers to read just as much as, as believers? Uh, is that sort of what you were aiming for? Yes, Simon, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you react to the book in that way. Mm. So a few things governed the way I wrote the book. First of all, this is my eighth book. So yeah. I wanted to write this book the same way I write my other books, the same way I write my journalism. So there's no doubt I'm a believer. I make that position clear in the book. Mm. But it's not a book by a 
you know, a clergyman. I'm not remotely criticising clergymen, but it, it's not a book. It's not an inside baseball kind of book. You don't have to know all the terminology. Journalism works best when it argues from first principles yeah. and it looks at the sources and it looks at the evidence. Yeah. So uh, I, I start with the, with the presumption that the Gospels are true, but I read them just as a secular journalist. Yeah. And then I write about them in the way that I'd write about anything else. So my whole life in journalism is about writing about complex subjects, uh, you know, military budgets, the ideology yeah. of the Chinese Communist Party, yeah. the you can see the American electoral system, but trying to make it interesting, and if not interesting, at least intelligible yeah. to a normal lay layperson readership. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you don't you don't use jargon. You try to talk. You try to argue from first principles. If you can put in a little bit of humour, that's good. Uh, sometimes you write a little bit about yourself, not not exactly about yourself, but how you react to a story. So that helps people understand. So this this story produces this reaction, that yeah. sort of thing. So yeah. all the things I've done in 42 years of journalism, I'm, I'm trying to do in this book, but with the added advantage that, that I've actually at last stumbled upon the, the best story, you know, yeah. so it took yeah. me 42 years, but I got there in the end. Yeah. Oh, very good. I mean, what you, you say in the preface that the book investigates Christians rather than Jesus himself, hence the, the title, and so you say that readers will meet Jesus, as you've, you've already alluded, Jesus will meet Jesus' first friends and then will meet some of his contemporary friends, Christians today. But Richard Glover's, there's a comment on the, on the cover of the book, which is also inside the, uh, the cover. Richard Glover says that Jesus jumps off the pages of the book. Why do you think Jesus jumps off the pages of a book that's actually about Jesus' friends? What, what's, what's the dynamic there, do you think? Well, it's extraordinarily good of Richard Glover to say that. So mm. Richard is a very distinguished, famous uh, ABC broadcaster and author, wrote a beautiful memoir himself called Flesh Wounds. And mm. um, with my last book, he, he said, uh, I, I, I had one complaint to the ABC. I thought his interview, the questions were so much cleverer uh, than, <laughs> than the answers. But, uh, and he said, I nearly had him at one point. Uh, his, wife, his wife got a bit worried at the point where I was arguing about how un likely life is especially yeah. human life and the yeah. best explanation is god yeah. but he remains a conscientious atheist but right. I'm, I'm thrilled that he had that reaction mm. uh um pastor russell evans from the pentecostal uh, mm. planet shakers had a similar reaction mm. so there, there is a chapter the first chapter is about the crucifixion which i mm. think is the most radical claim of christianity that god can die that even more radical than the resurrection yeah indeed and then the rest of the first half of the book is about the New Testament. So I'm then looking, in a sense, looking at Jesus through the experience of his first friends, mm -hmm. uh, the Gospel of John, also the experience of Mary, and then a chapter about uh, the historical figure of Paul. So Paul wasn't with Jesus on his earthly ministry, mm. but Paul stands in the position of modern Christians. Yeah, He has a relationship to Jesus which is spiritual, as it were, yeah. but nonetheless extremely intense but the first half of the book although it's about jesus first friends except for the chapter on the crucifixion yeah uh the friends are, are investigated in the light of their friendship with jesus and i'm thrilled that um, some people felt uh the personality of jesus came through i mean that's more than i could have ever hoped for or imagined mm. it's absolutely no credit to me but it is a credit to the tremendous power of the gospel 
if yeah. you actually go back to the gospel in, in a translation that is even remotely decent yeah. and actually, as I say, read it book by book, um, it's, it's incredibly powerful and, of course, full of humanity, all these, yeah. uh, all these little intricacies and, um, you know, uh, idiosyncrasies of, yeah. rather, of, uh, of the first disciples, and yes. which, again, to me, testifies to its authenticity because if you're making it up 300 years later, you wouldn't put all yeah. that... Uh, all that's you know, Paul losing right. his temper and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And I like, I mean, this is just just a quick comment, but one of the, the when you mentioned Paul before, uh, the chapter on Paul, you call him Christ's Lenin, which is quite a provocative way of putting it. I was quite struck by that chapter title and the chapter itself. Um, Paul was the Lenin of the early church, you've said on page 148, which I'm sure will make a few people's eyebrows raise. Uh, but it makes sense, right? Because he was such a provocative and human. Uh, enthusiast kind of person. Uh, he was passionate about Jesus and uh, made sure everyone knew about it. So I thought I thought it was very it was very good. I I, I like the way the way that uh, you shaped the first half of the book, not just talking about Jesus, but about those who knew him. Um, after the first part of the book, which you've kind of just outlined, there's a very interesting chapter on Christian engagement in culture and the arts. And I was especially taken by your account of the way that Christian themes have been presented in great no- like great novelists, contemporary novelists like Marilyn Robinson, but Robinson, sorry, but those like Evelyn War and Graham Greene, who I've been reading quite a bit of recently. What do you think the utility? What, what's the utility in Christians engaging in things like literature and art, in terms of engaging so in? Some, that, that's in a sense that's almost my favourite chapter in the book, yeah. but. Just before answering that, I just want to, if, if with your indulgence, uh, say one sentence about the comparison of um, calling <laughs> Paul Christ yeah. Lennon. Of course. This actually has upset a few people, a few oh. of my friends. <laughs> let, let me hasten to say, as I, as I point out in the book, there's no moral comparison no. between Paul and <laughs> That's me. So right. Lennon. Lennon was a murderous communist tyrant yeah. who hated humanity and didn't even like to listen to Beethoven because it made him feel sentimental about human beings. So in, in personality and moral character, yeah. Paul, who is an apostle of love, yeah. could not be less like Lenin. Yes. But the specific comparison I was making was this. Lenin was both the theorist of communism and the practitioner who yeah. transformed it into a powerful movement and brought yeah. it to power in the Soviet Union. Paul, similarly, was a profound... Uh, you know, theorist, if you like, of the Jesus movement. I mean, he understood the theology of Mm. Jesus and his personality, but he was also an organisational genius who spread the church in the early world, whose universalism, you know, there is neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, Mm. etc., completely revolutionised the ancient world, tore its mind out and really turned Christianity into an immensely uh, uh, popular movement so it's only in that way that i'm making that yes. comparison but i'm glad it struck you it shows, <laughs> yeah and, you know a journalist can't resist a, a good headline you know no uh, no, no uh, it was i thought it was very much a new sort of a newspaper headline style it's very attention grabbing but it makes perfect sense what you're saying there's an analogy between the way that the the men operated rather than the, not the morals but the, certainly what they yeah. what they achieved was extraordinary um, yeah and but, and the combination of the theory and the practice that's that right thing you know. That's right. But but to answer your question about the um, the chapter on culture, so one of the ways uh, the culture is turned against Christianity is that 
Christianity no longer appears in the culture. If you look back mm. at the at the at the Academy Award-winning movies of the 30s through to the 60s, mm. a huge number of them were Christian-themed movies. You know, How Green Was My Valley with the great, uh, you know, nonconformist Protestant clergyman, mm. Mr. Grufford, um, The Sound of Music, you know, the Von Trapps mm. uh, uh, escaping from Austria, escaping from the Nazis, um, and lots and lots of movies in between. Spencer Tracy and Gregory Peck playing uh, great tough guy, priests, yep. salt of the earth. Um, the bishop's wife, you know, Cary Grant playing an angel. Uh, mm. um, uh, it's a Beautiful Life, um, another film based on an angel. And now in a movie you almost never see Christianity and right. you never see, uh, and when you do see Christianity, most of the time it's in a negative spirit. Yes. So the clergyman is either an, an adulterer, a murderer, a child abuser, force for reaction, you know, an opponent of women's uh, mm. empowerment and so on, or, or they're just kooks, you know, they're at yep. the best, they're sort of harmless stuffers. Mm. And um, this is certainly the case in literature too. The great literature of the 20th century was essentially Christian literature, Graham yes. Greene, Evelyn Waugh. Um, when Thomas Merton wrote his book, The Seven-Sided Mountain, about becoming a, a monk, it sold three million copies in mm. the 1950s. Uh, whereas popular books today, that's not so. Although, as I say, Marilyn Robinson is a great exception, this wonderful right. Christian novel, Gilead. But why should Christians engage in the arts? Why should the arts pay attention to Christ? First of all, the proper purpose of the arts is the pursuit of truth and beauty. And at the heart of truth and beauty is Jesus Christ. Also, the proper purpose of the novel is to examine the deepest truths of the human heart. And at the centre of every human being is God, even if they're not aware mm. that at the centre of them is God. So for, for art to do its job properly, it's going to be dealing with, uh, with God. The mm. other thing is you cannot uh, accurately portray humanity if you no. leave out the religious dimension. So I cite a TV series, Jane the Virgin, terrible title. You hear this title, you think yeah. it's going to be a, a raucous, blasphemous uh, mistreatment of Christian morality. In fact, it's uh, it's a crazy American sitcom, but it's it's quite a beautiful <laughs> series which right. celebrates the Christian faith of the Hispanic heroine, Jane, and uh, who decides to remain a virgin until she's married. Mm. And she does this out of religious conviction. Her religion is not mocked. Mm. There are many, you know, sitcom-style adventures and alarms and so on, but all the way through, it's it, it affirms the place of the Christianity of Hispanics because you can't really render Hispanic life in America yeah. without Christianity. Yes. But finally, what is the purpose of it? I um, believe that most people come to Christianity not through intellectual argument but through personal experience, either a personal experience of God or a personal experience of Christians, which mm. leads them to God. And... Um, but it's important to have the intellectual arguments to show people who are interested that there's no barrier to faith in yes. the intellect. But the arts engage the emotions, the senses, and they are a way that people have an experience. You know, mm. it, there's something mystical about reading a novel. Yeah. Uh, you really live with the, the characters in that novel for you know, the 20 hours that you read it or something, and they live in your imagination and so on. Yeah. A book that I like very much, um, Graham Greene's 
the end of the affair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has it has the miraculous in it. So if you be- if you're going to believe the novel, Graham Greene's a great great novelist. Yeah, wonderful novel, and it's it's uncompromising. A miracle occurs in the second half of the book, or a couple of miracles. So you you kind of yeah. if you dismiss miracles, you have to dismiss the novel. But it also uh, it also shows the power of the religious connection when the heroine. Uh, becomes a, a believer, and then she writes a kind of a diary, a dialogue uh, with God. It's yes. immensely powerful. And Green himself, of course, was a convert to Christianity, to active Christianity. Yes. And then my final reflection: this book, Gilead, mm. which I think is the best Christian novel of the it's, 21st century. It's a wonderful novel. Yeah, it, it really is. And when you tell people what it is, you say this is a 77-year-old congregational minister <laughs> in the mid 1950s. Yeah reflecting on his extremely uneventful life yes. as he is about to die. And you couldn't you couldn't set up something less likely to be interesting than that. Yeah. But I have recommended that novel to a lot of atheist friends, mm. and without exception they've come back saying this was profoundly moving, this was a revelation. Yes. And Marilyn Robinson uh, achieves a lot of things in that novel which are uh, astounding, but... Um, so he's about to die, or he's mm. going to die soon, and uh, he's contemplating what heaven will be like. Mm. Uh, you hardly ever hear about heaven in Christian mm. uh, thinking and teaching. You, you almost never hear about hell either. The four last things, death, judgment, heaven, hell, even yeah. Christians never talk of them anymore. Yep. So here is a commercially successful novel which won the Pulitzer Prize, mm. giving us tens of pages of contemplation about what heaven will be like and how heaven will relate to to earth and so on yes but it, it's an incomparably beautiful novel you can't uh, you can't fail to be won by it it's and true. um i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people had come to christianity through that novel i'd be astonished if not at least one had come yep. and if of course if one person comes to christianity through a work of art mm. well then that's that's fantastic. That yeah. justifies the word about a thousand times over. Yeah, yeah. But I think what you, I, I, I think what, I, how I would put, um, put, I think what you've uncovered is the import, the, the importance of the imagination in people understanding Christianity or at least grappling with with the faith. Um, and that's something the novelists achieve, uh, like like Marilyn Robinson. Great. I read, um, I've read two Graham Greene novels recently: The Power and the Glory and Bright and Rock, and both confront head on um, is it the, the impact of, of uh, the Roman Catholic faith on their characters. And it's, I mean, this, there's something so they also, I think they address themes. Like you've said, we don't talk about the, the four last things, but novels can do it in a way which is almost more confronting, but at one, one point less confronting as well. There's something you wouldn't hear it from the pulpit, but it works in a novel somehow. So I think you've really, well, you, know, you really touched on something important there. I'm glad you read those novels. Um, Brighton Rock, I think, is one of the most uh, one of the most truly terrifying novels uh, <laughs> that I've ever read. Yeah. And uh, the character, I think, it's, his name is Pinky, isn't it? That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Pinky, although there is a there is a tortured depth of humanity in him, he is one of the most terribly evil characters. Yeah. So Green had this extraordinary capacity mm. to create to create. Uh, wickedness in a character, yep. not not in the slapstick way, no. but then he does have this capacity to create hope as well. That's why I chose the end of the affair mm. as the novel that I focused on because he he could be a bit bleak, honestly, yeah. Graham Greene. Yeah, yeah. He often doesn't yeah. end 
<laughs> you know, and the ending of Brighton Rock, don't read it if you're already depressed. It's uh, yeah, no. the ending of it no. is terrible. Right. Whereas the ending of the end of the affair, it's really, it's kind of, it's very heartwarming. Mm. The guy doesn't win the girl. I'm spoiling the plot, but the girl dies. Sure. But, but there's a reconciliation between the lover and the jilted mm. husband mm -hmm. that is all too believable and it's quite, quite heartwarming. Mm. Um, the other novelist I love so much, Willa Cather, began life as a Baptist, but in her maturity was an Episcopalian. Yeah. Her, her novel, um, Death Comes for the Archbishop, mm. I mean, all of her novels are beautiful, but Death Comes for the Archbishop, I think, is one of the great novels of the 20th century. And it's not really a novel. It's it's an extended act of prayer. Right. But it's, it's absolutely gripping all the way through. You, you can't put it down. The two yeah. priests that she's writing about are very believable and they have their failings and shortcomings and doubts and problems as well. Yeah. But there's something luminous about Willa Cather's writing. Mm. that, um, And, of course, you hardly ever hear of these novelists now. Marilyn Robinson you hear about. But one, yeah. one object of that chapter was to alert people, say, look, yeah. if you'd like to read something, yeah. you know, which does, as you say, you're, you're absolutely right, Simon, and novelists engage the imagination in a way that other writers can't. Mm. And just to let people know, there's this great Christian inheritance in literature, in, in right. mainstream secular literature. None of these people was a professional Christian. Right. You know, they weren't, a, they weren't a clergyman or something or an yeah. academic. No, nothing wrong with clergymen or academics, yes, but they were, they were secular, successful novelists. Yes, you know, uh, that's right. So I hope that's a small service to people as well to, to alert them that this material is there. And I think, too, Christianity making a tiny, tiny comeback in some films mm -hmm. where... Just to present the characters honestly, you have to present their Christianity, and that's um, uh, that's great. So here's another lesson to Christians. Lead such fabulous lives that people want to make movies about them, and <laughs> then they're going, to have to, well, they're going to have to deal with your Christianity as well. That's good. I like that. Maybe someone will make a movie about you, Greg. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> no, 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 no. Fails <laughs> on all respects. Fails on all respects. <laughs> sure. Um, prob probably the, the, the chapter that... Will, that people will be most interested in, I suspect, is the one where you discuss the faith of a range of current and former public figures. So you, um, the former leader of the opposition, Bill Hayden, oh, these are all Australians, um, the former Governor-General, Peter Cosgrove, former Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson, are all featured. Um, however, the part that will probably get everyone talking the most is the section on Scott Morrison, the Australian, the current Australian Prime Minister. Could you... Tell us more about the Prime Minister's faith and how he understands, because this is, I mean, this is a point of controversy, right? Recently, this came up as a big controversy for the Prime Minister when he went to the Australian Christian Churches Conference down on the Gold Coast, off down for me, up for you, um, uh, the Gold Coast. But, um, and people got very edgy about the mix between his faith and his politics. How does the Prime Minister see those two things mixing? Um, what insights did you get from... from um, from writing about the Prime Minister's faith in that regard? Well, I'm very impressed by the way the Prime Minister handles his faith. I've got no doubt at all about its sincerity. Yeah. So this book isn't a left versus right book. It's not no. a culture wars book. It doesn't mm. take any position between liberal versus labor or anything like that. And um, because I've written about religion spasmodically, for, really for my whole 40 years in journalism, but only, only a lot in the last few years, but here and there for 40 years, politicians have often spoken to me a little bit about their religious views or their religious experience. I've never been any use to them because I've always been so cagey, you know, I, I, like a real journalist. I'm 
wanting them to give me secrets. I, I don't want to don't want to reach out a, a hand of friendship to them yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. But um, I've known Scott Morrison for quite a long time, and uh, I would certainly say that his uh, religious faith is the centre of his life. There's yep. no doubt about that. I think so. Without judging whether he's a good or bad prime minister, I think he's a good prime minister. I think all of our politicians are pretty good people. They they work hard. They and the ones I know who are Christians, there's not one of them I think uh, uses their Christianity in a base way or tries yeah. to exploit it. In fact, they're mostly very shy about it. Yeah. Uh, that's partly because the culture has browbeaten them, partly because they're aware of their own fallibility. And mm. very much like me, they don't want Christianity to be judged by their own rackety lives, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> Scott Morrison, I think, so he's a bit unusual because he's the first Pentecostal Christian to lead an OECD nation. Yep. Uh, he wasn't brought up as a Pentecostal. He was brought up in a Presbyterian church, which became a Uniting Church. Um, uh, he he and his wife, Jenny, had both, by coincidence, attended the same Billy Graham yep. uh, rally. And oddly enough, I was there too, way back in 1979. Oh, right. Um, and uh, he... After they married, they started going a bit more to um, to charismatic churches. And when they lived in, in New Zealand for a while, they, they were involved in a charismatic church. But he, I think, so the faith is the centre of his life, as is his family. He prays every day. He's very serious about it. He knows his Bible very well. Mm. But he's also a very successful contemporary secular politician. Now, he's taken the view that he's open about his religion Yes. But he doesn't go out of his way to talk about it. It's very often mocked and attacked in the most unreasonable way. But on the other hand, the attacks are so patently unfair yeah. that I think, if anything, they rebound to his advantage. But he's also wise enough to know he's not going to make, um, he's not going to try to claim martyrdom for himself or anything like that. He gets a huge mail from Australian Christians all the time. Uh, sending him words of encouragement and so on. People who are not Christians are generally very accepting. And, yeah. of course, we live in a part of the world, Asia, which is full of religious belief. Yes. You know, the sort of bargain basement silly atheism that we're drifting into is very eccentric and weird yes. by the standards of our, of our region. It might be quite, quite normal in London or New York. Mm. It's very bizarre in Jakarta mm. or Manila or Bangkok or in the South Pacific where there are you know, hundreds of thousands of Pentecostals just like uh, Scott Morrison. So that's a point of connection for yes, him yes. with other readers. You know, the idea you could go to an Indonesian book festival and yes. not see the mention of Islam, it's <laughs> utterly inconceivable, yes. you know. And uh, the other thing I'd say about Scott Morrison, and some Christians don't quite agree with him or with me when, when, when I report this and when I say I agree with it, he is of the view that the Bible is not a policy handbook. Mm -hmm. So there are, plain, there are plain areas where Christianity has a clear view which you could not possibly contradict as a politician and claim to be a Christian. You cannot, you know, approve the killing of innocent human beings. Yep. You cannot uh, promote racial hatred or indeed any hatred. Yep. You have to respect human dignity. These are things on which Christianity is absolutely clear. Yeah. But Christianity doesn't really tell you. The Bible doesn't tell you. Should you deregulate the industrial relations <laughs> system? <laughs> How should you run fiscal policy? Mm. And those Christian politicians in America who sort of say, you know, we've got to cut the tax rate because this is the teaching of Jesus. Well, I, I think that's just silly. And <laughs> I agree. It's, it's silly <laughs> to say it, you know, 
And uh, not many people do really say that. And in Australia, it's almost unheard of. Yes. But Scott Morrison certainly doesn't think that God tells him to, you know, promote this bit of legislation. But at the same time, he looks all the time to his Christian faith for inspiration. Yes. So when he was on the uh, on the hustings and he was feeling down and a bit depressed and a bit lacking of energy, saw the painting of an eagle and it recalled to him a verse from the Old Testament, you will soar like an eagle and you will run and your limbs will not grow weary. And this became controversial when he said this at the Australian Christian Churches Conference. But he wasn't saying, I am the eagle of God swooping on man, you know, to deliver you good. What he was saying was, I found encouragement in that verse. And he would be the first to say that Labor politicians who are Christian might find a similar encouragement right. in, in a similar verse. Right. So in terms of Christianity, he was very open with me. There was no question that he didn't answer. I asked him how he prayed, what he thought about the afterlife. Was he going to meet his, um, his dead father and mother? Again, and he was very straightforward and direct, didn't hedge any anything. And um, we had, you know, one really long conversation and a number of things that uh, that we followed up. I, I think he handles it. Uh, I think he handles it very well. But it's it strikes me that he's consistent in his um, rejection of the idea that there's a mix, but that there's an inherent connection between faith and policy. So. He, you would, you, you, what you're, I think what you've suggested in the book is that it deeply impacts him as an individual and motivates him to be, to, to serve in his role, but it doesn't actually define his policies per se. Um, and that, and but, but I think that it seems like the media and maybe his detractors jump to that conclusion straight away and they say, oh, look, he's, a, he's saying he's a Christian and therefore all of his policy positions are Christian positions. And I, and you're suggesting there's not there's not a connection in his mind, at least, between those things. I mean, what do you think the connection between faith and policy is? Is, is there one? There, there is, but it's both it's both deeper and less specific. Mm. So, why do we believe in human rights? So, one thing you want to do as a policy practitioner is observe human rights, promote human dignity. Now. Christianity is a universal faith. It's available to everyone. And a majority of Christians in the world today are not Westerners. But it is also the historical case that Western civilization grew up as the child of the Jewish and Christian traditions yes. or the Christian tradition with its inheritance of Judaism and so on as well. I think it's reasonable to talk about the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yeah. And the, the, uh, the search for decency which Western civilization has. Okay, Western civilization done a lot of bad things as well, and Christian done a lot of bad things, no doubt about that. But the things which are positive, this is great Larry, um, Oxford scholar Larry Sittentop in, in oh, his yes. wonderful book, in The Individual, yeah, argues that every great book, great book, yep. tremendous, the best book of history I've ever read. Yep. And he argues that everything we like in modern liberalism was thought through by the end of the Middle Ages and emerges organically out of Christianity. So human dignity, which is a core Western idea, emerges from the idea that every human being has an immortal relationship mm. with God, that every human being is made in the likeness of God. So Christianity, I think, undergirds yep. all the ethical dynamics and normative uh, aspirations that, that good politicians have, right. even if they don't do it, even if they're non-Christian. They're right. still using... Christian categories. Yeah. But as I say, I don't think it it adjudicates normal centre left versus centre right policies. Yes. So you might say 
certainly there's an imperative in Christianity to help the poor. I think if you're indifferent to the poor, it's hard to see, hard to square that with Christianity. But how do you help the poor? So a centre-left politician might say, let's give them more welfare. That's a reasonable thing to say. A centre-right politician might say, let's um, deregulate the industrial relations system a bit so that you get more people into the formal economy and at entry level, more people get jobs, and that gives them the dignity of labour. It gives them an income, mm. and that's a way to help the poor. Yeah. Well, both of those, both of those positions—they're contradictory, but they're perfectly yeah. open to a faithful Christian. You know, yeah. it would be quite wrong for the proponent of either of those positions to say, "If you disagree with me, you're a bad Christian." You yes. Know? So the influence of Christianity on public policy is pervasive. Yes. It does have some specific things that it says absolutely, the life issues and so on. Yes. But but it doesn't, as I say, I don't think, you know, a lot of politics is kind of trivial. You know, how do you run the post office? Well, that, that is an important question, but it doesn't go to the core of your being or anything. No. <laughs> I would hate politics to, I would hate the, the business of politics to be at the core of my being, you know. Yes. Nonetheless, I recognise that yeah. politics is important. Yeah, yeah. That's that's very it's very good one. Um, one of the things the books you mentioned there, Larry, Larry Seeden top book. Um, it's a fascinating argument in that it it as you said, it's like he he basically cuts the pro enlightenment argument off at the knees, and he says actually it's all set up before the Reformation. All of the bits of liberalism are there, and as you said, then they work themselves out organically after uh, after the Reformation. Um, but people miss this argument these days. But they, they don't they don't understand our history. And one thing you return to a number of times across the book is this decline of Christianity in the West, but also a discarding of our Western heritage, which I think Seed and Top's book kind of over um, kind of uncovers. I think because it, it 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 pushes back against many of our assumptions. What do you think the future of the West is and the future of Christianity in the West? I mean, you're not a prophet or the son of a prophet, I presume, but do you, do you, have, a, do you have a read on where we're headed? I mean, you, you've been a commentator on the importance of Western civilization and the education system and so on, and that's something that we're interested in here at the Millis Institute and at Christian Heritage College. What's your view on, on that big question about the position or the future of the West and of Christianity? Well, Simon, let me start before answering your question properly to say what you're doing is exactly what should be done. Mm -hmm. So the the energy and rebirth and uh, green shoots of Christianity are in things like your college and so on. So there is an ambient background decline in Mm. Christianity in the West, but at the same time, there are tremendous green shoots, uh, tremendous new movements and... um, that's, that's a tremendous sign of hope. But where is Western civilization going? So West, de- defining the West as Western Europe, North America and Australia mm. and New Zealand, it is becoming substantially more atheist as the years go by. Um, and the, the older cohorts of people are very faithful believers. Each, each younger cohort has less believers than, or fewer believers than the cohort above it. Oh, I think you can possibly see a turning I think you could possibly discern the beginnings of a turning. It is, of course, extremely eccentric position that the West is in because religion is on fire in the rest of the world. You know, it's the social force that the Chinese Communist Party can't contain Mm. is Christianity. Mm. Christianity is on fire in Africa. Um, Christians are persecuted. They're the most persecuted religion in the world, but they're faithful even unto death in Pakistan Mm. and, uh, you know, many other parts of Asia and Africa and so on. But for the West, now, in one sense, 
the portents are gloomy enough because, yep. uh, you know, the West is going mad in its ideology. Uh, yep. I think all this crazy identity politics, that's what happens to liberalism when you cut it off from its, yep. its underlying Christian roots. It just goes crazy. And yep. it's looking for absolutes in politics. This that's is where right. I say politics is very ugly if you regard it as the... As the, the core of your being. being yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, the glory of being is concerned with politics. That's very, very ugly. And human, and also, if you take Christianity out of politics, it's very ugly. My favourite newspaper columnist, Ross Douthat, the New York Times, oh, yes. has a great line. that says, if you didn't like the Christian right, wait till you meet the post-Christian right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the left are mad to think that they're going to win forever. Yeah. They'll win for a while, and then the people who will end up opposing them will not yes. be those well-mannered, good, kindly, generous Christian conservatives that they yep. so despise. They yep. will be marauding, nationalistic, tribalistic uh, yep. people filled with hostility and resentment. Where is the West going? You can see good signs yep. and an overall level of decline. Mm. One of the people I interview in the book is Nikki Gumbel, who's the yep. great progenitor of the Alpha Course, you know, the, mm. uh, the vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton in London. He gave me a stunning um, vignette, and other Christian leaders have given me similar images. In 1750, I think it was 16 people attended the Easter service in St mm. Paul's Cathedral in London, 16 people. There were 10,000 sex workers uh, walking the streets of London. Mm. But then along came the Wesleys, the Methodist mm. revival, Wilberforce, and there was a, a tremendous rebirth of Christianity throughout Britain. Yeah. And very often in a moment like this, the Christian church, defining that most broadly, yeah. has has bounced back, has rebounded brilliantly. Uh, there's a wonderful line of Wesley's, you know, uh, I get to misremember the quote, but it's something like, if you set yourself on fire with enthusiasm, people will come from miles to watch you yeah. burn. You know? and, and, of course, we have the assurance in the gospel uh, where Jesus says, you know, uh, the gates of hell will never prevail against you. Mm. So that's not uh, a recipe for complacency. That's a recipe for us all to be as active as we can in our own way. And one thing I want to do with these books is encourage all Christians to own their faith publicly, not mm. necessarily to, you know, spruik on every street corner. I mean, everybody yeah. has their own uh, method, their own call, but but I do think all Christians should own their faith publicly because it encourages other Christians, and it's a signpost to people who don't yet um, don't yet have the truth. It's very hard to predict how the West will go. I would say yeah. I don't think the West can be the West unless it recovers belief in Christianity because mm. we are competing with societies which have much cruder but much more vigorous belief systems. You know, mm. Chinese nationalism. Russian nationalism, Islamism in a lot of uh, societies. And I don't think our um, our guilt-ridden, angst-ridden, confused, febrile, neurotic, yeah. uh, crazy caricature of liberalism is enough to sustain the leading global civilization. So yeah. there are conservative friends or people, you know, that I've done seminars with and so on, Douglas Murray, Jordan Peterson, yeah. even perhaps Tom Holland, who mm. appreciate everything Christianity offers to Western civilization, but don't want to quite make the final leap themselves yep. of proclaiming Christianity and would like to hold the view that you can have Christian values without Christian belief. Yes. Now, I'm not remotely judging any of those men as individuals, but I think in the end, 
that's not a sustainable position, especially for young people. You can't say to young people in their teens and 20s, I want you to hold all these social norms, even though they are based on beliefs which I think are superstitious, right. meaningless, fraudulent, fake. Yeah. You know, their, their response will either be, I'd rather go to the beach, or yep. they yep. can seek out something much more intense. They'll seek out an intense experience of belief somewhere else. So yeah. I do think the future of the West, even if Christianity is not a policy handbook, the future of the West is tied to a rebirth of Christianity. Final thought, Peter Cosgrove, who's a wonderfully ebullient guy, I, I mm. spoke to him not about being Governor General or Chief of the Defence Force, but about being a believer yep. in war. Yep. He saw a lot of action in Vietnam. He was a platoon commander in a platoon commander's war, mm. and I asked him about what it was like to, to look on the bodies of the dead that you and your soldiers have killed, to pray in the time of battle, to be a religious believer in war. And he's a terrifically ebullient fellow. And he didn't give me an intellectual reason, but he said he was certain that there would be a revival of Christianity. He was filled right. with optimism. Right. And uh, you know, I think his optimism may be beyond reason, but yep. I don't think it's unreasonable. Well, it's a good optimistic note for us to finish on. I've really enjoyed the chat, Greg. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Simon. A great pleasure to, uh, to talk to you. The, uh, the book, here it is again. Uh, the book is Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. It's available uh, if you're allowed to go to the bookstore um, in your state. It's available in a bookstore. Otherwise, of course, you can always order it online. Uh, it's a great read. And thank you for joining us on the Millis podcast.